Hey folks, it's your lovely host, Cat Bailey, here to tell you that US Gamer and Axe of the Blood God is going to be at PAX West next week. From August 30th to September 2nd, we are going to be having lots of events and panels, and you should go to all of them. Here's a quick rundown for you. On Friday at 7.30 p.m. Pacific, US Gamer and Game Explain will be live at PAX West. Join Nadia, Mike Williams, Eric Van Allen, and the crew of Game Explain as they talk about all the events that's been happening in the year of Nintendo this year. Then, on Saturday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific, Eric Van Allen will be hosting an event along with Xseed in which you can test your might against Justin Wong and Grand Blue Fantasy Versus and win prizes. Do you think you're good enough to beat the best in a game that's not even out yet? Well, go ahead and try. And even if you aren't able to beat Justin, we will be giving away cool prizes, including a signed fight stick by Justin himself. Then, for all of you Axe of the Blood God fans, on Sunday at noon Pacific, we will be hosting a deep dive into the amazing visual storytelling of Final Fantasy VII's Midgar with Ash Paulson from Game Explain. Alex, Alex Donaldson from VG247, and it's all hosted by Nadia as they delve into the most iconic areas of Midgar from the slums to Eris Church and break down why its famous setting is one of the greatest in gaming history. And we also have the Twisted Timeline of Metal Gear Solid. That's Monday at 10.30 a.m. Pacific. That's hosted by Mike Williams. And The Art of Writing Video Games, a conversation with Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines 2 writer Kara Ellison, hosted by Eric Van Allen. That's Monday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific. That's a lot of panels. It's all over at the Sheraton Hotel in the theater over there. So just go on over. All of the Gamer Network friends are going to be there. Outside Xbox, Eurogamer, VG247, US Gamer and everybody else. Uh, our crew, Mike, Nadia, and Eric are all gonna be on different panels, including Retronauts. So go check them out over at PAX West. And if you see them on the floor, go say hi. I'm sure they welcome it. Thanks for your attention. Now let's move on to the rest of the podcast. Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. Um, I'm just stunned that we're less than a week away from PAX. Like, I just, it was like, you know, six weeks last I checked and suddenly it's a week. Yeah, I've been planning for PAX and Burning Man low these past hundred years, so it feels a little <laughs> weird that we're, they're literally just around the corner. So here we go. Yeah, it's uh, it's coming whether we like it or not. So what panels do you got, Nadia? I say in an obvious promotional tease. Also, we're going to have our promotional teaser at the beginning of this episode. So, I mean, you if you didn't know that PAX was coming, PAX is definitely coming. Yeah, <laughs> now there is no room for doubt. I am actually, uh, you'll have to check the schedule or and or the promotional materials for the exact times, but... Uh, I am actually on five panels. I am on, um, I was just placed on the Final Fantasy ranking panel. Uh, that's with VG247, uh, as well as my own, uh, my own panel about, uh, storytelling, the visual storytelling in Midgar of Final Fantasy VII. So we have like two Final Fantasy panels going. That should be, that should be pretty cool for me. Uh, we have, uh, US Gamer versus Game Explain. 
We have um, Retronauts panel. I'll be on that as well. And uh, there was one other that I am blanking on because I'm on so many panels. <laughs> I'm letting you guys fly free and run this whole PAX thing by yourselves while I'm completely off the grid. So it's, I'm excited to see the results. Yes, we are very grateful. When, when you come back and everything's ashes, you'll be like, oh, well, it was, it was Burning Man, not just there, but here as well. I'm imagining the gift from Community where Troy returns with pizza and everything's on fire. <laughs> everything's on fire and everything's like, everyone's like fighting and like, you know, scrabbling for food. Yeah, it's it the, the darkest timeline gif. Yeah. By the way, that episode is incredible. I should watch it. I should, really should. Oh, you would love Community, Nadia. It's so good. I probably would. Uh, I, in fact, I know I would. Something that people should know about me is that I'm a solid five to six years behind on pop culture at any given time, so... That's fair. So am I. Uh, or if not more. I mean, I finished Breaking Bad finally, uh, I think last year. I d- you know, I've never seen Breaking Bad. I just have no interest in it. Uh, I don't think you would like Breaking Bad. It doesn't really strike me as my jam. No, it really isn't. Though, I will say that it's one of the best shows ever made. Yeah, I mean, it has to be pretty good for like to make such an impact on, uh, on the culture. I mean, heck, even Zootopia referenced it. <laughs> Did they? They did. There was like a scene where uh, they're, they're, the uh, characters are like looking at the place where some like that flower was synthesized, and uh, it was totally just a, uh, a kind of a rehash of that lab. Oh, uh, I see the blue meth lab thing. Exactly. Yes, it was perfect. Okay, Nadia, we got a lot to cover this week. We are going to talk briefly about the Dragon Quest Eleven demo coming out on Nintendo Switch. Have you had a chance to play it yet? Yes, I have not played like, you know, hours of it, but I have indeed like delved into it and uh, it is it is quite impressive. Cool. So we'll get to that. We're also going to talk about Oninaki, which your review is up on the site. And we're going to do a mailbag today. Today is mailbag day. We have a lot of questions from our loyal disciples of the blood god. So we will be diving into that as well. Okay, if you want to reach us, you can follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. You can email me at cat.bailey at usgamer.net. Go to our website, usgamer.net. We have a lot of great stuff over on the site, including an interview with the producers of Trials of Mana. Nadia did a whole article about what went wrong with the Nintendo Switch Online over the course of its first year. It's a real deep dive into that. And Mike wrote a nice explainer about uh, ray tracing and why that matters for next gen in a way that even total tech idiots like myself can totally understand. (laughs) Right here. And Eric Van Allen, our news person, did a nice little profile of the people who are opening restaurants at the end of the universe in No Man's Sky. Oh, you know, I didn't get a chance to read that. That sounds really fun. We also have a newsletter that comes out every Wednesday, the Acts of Blood God newsletter, in which we round up all of the RPG news from the past week and also have some thoughts from Nadia. Nadia, what was your thoughts this past week? Oh, since I missed out on the romance discussion that y'all had, um, I thought I'd just kind of delve a little bit into my own opinions on what makes a good uh, RPG romance. And my large takeaway is, you know what? I'm old. I don't have time for, like, stupid teenagers mooning over each other. So <laughs> I like relationships that are that are adult and have, like, you know, adult flaws, adult problems, and just aren't, like, you know, Romeo and Juliet flings on balconies or whatever. 
Indeed. So you won't find that over on the site. But if you so if you want to go read it, you got to subscribe to the newsletter, and it will come into your mailbox every Wednesday, straight from Madia's brain to your eyeballs. <laughs> Wear some radiation protection. <laughs> okay. So Nadia, you reviewed Oninaki. Let's yes. talk about it a little bit. Oninaki is another RPG by Tokyo RPG Factory, who just uh, no keeps bringing them out to their credit. It feels like a threat. Another RPG by Tokyo <laughs> RPG Factory. <laughs> Gird your loins. Here comes another one. Uh, I know that sounds really mean of me, but I think out of all of Tokyo RPG's uh, Factory's games, which to this point is um, I Am Satsuna, Lost Spear, and now Oninaki, I think this is the one that comes closest to getting it, but it still doesn't quite get it. Um, and the main reason for that is Oninaki is a action RPG, which is fine. It actually has its own, like, ideas for a change uh, but the enemy the enemies are so unbalanced that every encounter you come across is just such a slog because you're sitting there pounding on enemies and they're all, they all take so much damage and then you know you get past that and you come against another wall of enemies and it just stop go stop go stop go throughout the whole game and that is a shame because I actually think the the story and the setting and the, the ideas behind the narrative are actually very interesting um, this takes place in a world where reincarnation is, is more or less confirmed, uh, and but people actually don't get any sort of peace of mind from knowing, oh, I'll be reborn again, because they don't know if they're going to find their loved ones in the, you know, in, in the next life. So they kind of fall prey to a lot of grifters and cults who are like, oh, yeah, we guarantee you'll find your loved ones. Here's this charm. Or uh, worse, there was a, a cult that you know, said, if you kill yourselves on our terms, you'll find all your loved ones, you know, when you die. And people did. And there were children amongst them. And it was just uh, it's a very dark sort of story. Uh, I was actually surprised how dark it gets. Uh, the main narrative kind of it falls back into that tropey sort of anime stuff with like, you know, evil, vengeful being who's mad about things and, uh, you know, anime girls with, with, an with, with amnesia. But I still think that the the smaller narratives, the smaller stories about the, these people finding peace in the afterlife and, and worrying about the afterlife is still very compelling regardless. Yeah, in your review, you were kind of suggesting that Oninaki is evidence of Tokyo RPG Factory starting to get it and move forward a little bit. I think the best thing that you can say about Oninaki is that it's not lifting directly from a more established and perhaps more popular game, i.e. Chrono Trigger, and that they're st striking out on their own a little bit more so that they have more of their own kind of uh, personality, I suppose you could say. Exactly. Oninaki, even though it is it is definitely inspired by Xenoblade Chronicles 2, and I'll explain how in a moment, and it's inspired by uh, Diablo in that you you pick up a lot of loot and you, you go up against a lot of enemy mobs that are just like take forever to mow down and that's the main problem. It is not just like directly cribbing Chrono Trigger, which was the problem I had with I Am Setsuna in that, uh, okay, you are trying to be this brilliant, amazing game, like the number one RPG of all time, in our opinion, frankly, and you are not. You, you're not even close. So you're making me think about this fantastic RPG while I'm playing this kind of mediocre RPG. And I, I didn't really do that with, with uh, Oninaki. I wasn't sitting there like, oh, man, you know, I really wish I was playing Zenelite Chronicles 2. I really wish I was playing Diablo. I was kind of enjoying the game for what it was, even though it's not perfect by a long shot. Uh, but what I mean by it's kind of like Xenoblade Chronicles 2 is that you collect demons. 
and you equip these demons instead of equipping like you know standard skills, standard sword, standard whatever. And the demon that you kind of use as you fight, you can choose between four. You can equip up to four. That determines how you fight. Like for example, you might have a demon who specializes in speed and swords. You might have a demon who specializes, <coughs> pardon me, in spears and like kind of aerial attacks. Uh, I actually have a. F- uh, I really like this one demon who's a, a giant wolf. And this wolf like bites a, has a bite attack, of course, and they also like have area of effect uh, buffs and debuffs, which is very very handy when you have enemies that won't freaking die. So, I, I was really kind of disappointed that the the balance was not where it should be in terms of the gameplay, and that frankly the game still looks kind of not good. Which I wouldn't hold against Oninaki so badly if not for the fact that. It really pins you in places and expects you to like go, you know, bang, bang, bang against these enemies for, for ages at a time, while these enemies are just like really kind of dull to look at. Yeah, I think the secret of Diablo is one: uh, it has a distinct art style and interesting characters, and so it never gets too samey, as it were. And I think when you're operating on a relatively limited budget, it can be quite difficult to crank out a large number of interesting enemies because you only have so many so much resources so many people right exactly and again i really wouldn't hold that against the game if it was if it really just kind of balanced itself better uh one thing about diablo i mean i had a fantastic time with diablo 3 on the switch that was my first diablo game and the thing with that is yes you have like these mobs that keep on coming and coming but they're dispatched so easily like you know one shot and they're gone and then you have you know occasional appearances of like you know more difficult enemies but there are less of them and you you kind of have to like hold your own against those while you're still being mobbed by the smaller enemies and then you, of course you have your big bosses and what have you whereas uh Aninaki is more like hey every every schlub it kind of is feels like you're fighting like a mid boss a lot of the time the pleasure of Diablo 3 is that you're constantly mixing and matching and experimenting with different builds right and and those builds can make your character extremely different, no matter, depending on which strategy you kind of go with. And also the battles, as you said, are fairly fast-paced and fairly breezy. Um, and then the other thing is, is that as you level up, Diablo 3, I could you could say, kind of keeps reinventing itself. Because either you get, like, a fancy new piece of loot that makes you rethink your entire build, or... You unlock a, a new skill that completely changes the way that you approach individual encounters, and that's how it stays fresh, right? And it doesn't feel like a total grind all the time. And it's not that is not an easy kind of mix to hit, right? I mean, so many games do they they don't they don't mix things up enough. Uh, they become repetitive without really seeming to realize it. Uh, it it's tough. It really is, and you can really see uh, where Oninaki wanted to be like Diablo in that respect, because I did say that, yes, your gameplay can change up quite a bit depending on the demon you use or the skills you equip, but it doesn't matter that much in the end, because the enemies still, no matter what you're up against, no matter what you wield, you're still up against damage sponges, basically. And yes, there is loot, but it doesn't drop that much, you know what I mean? It's not enough to be really satisfactory. So is the story interesting enough to kind of overcome that? Yes. Like, it's... I gave the game ultimately a 3.5. And I feel like, yes, the story was enough to keep me going. 
Um, one thing that I found that did help a bit with the, the gameplay being such a slog is, number one, I changed the difficulty to casual, which makes the enemies uh, absorb fewer hits. And, you know, you just kind of, uh, you can put like a podcast on, may I recommend one, to kind of get you through the more grindy bits or, you know, my playlist as I used. Uh, there's also the fact that you can go, uh, the character you play as, you, he can go beyond the veil, quote unquote, which means he can kind of visit the world of the dead. And when he does that, his attacks become more uh, powerful. So are the enemy's attacks, but that's not such a bad thing. Like, the balance is, uh, the trade-off is fine. Uh, and I would definitely say, even though, as I said, the main plot kind of regressed into that anime sort of, you know, not bad, but, you know, I've, I've heard the song before, Territory, I still really liked the, the individual characters you meet. I like the fact that the demons all have unlockable stories that you can you can kind of pursue and, and get a feel for who they were in their past life. And even though it's all very dramatic in that, you know, JRPG way, it's still... It's, the game's still written quite well. So, yeah, I would say I, I certainly didn't sit there resenting my time with the game. I just wished that it had... If it had done those tweaks, I think it could have been something really special. I think that if you're going to make an action RPG of this kind, uh, mm -hmm. you have to just have extremely deep systems to meet with kind of breezy gameplay. Uh, alternatively, making something extremely tactical, uh, where you have to think a lot about how you're going to approach an individual encounter. It sounds like, for the most part, they managed to get the gameplay depth uh, right, but maybe the actual encounters, maybe not as well. So it it gets close, but it, it really doesn't quite does there. get close. Yeah, it's. I really do hope in the next time around they really nail it because I feel like, you know, I, I doubt they're going to go back and really fix all these problems and, you know, implement a more Diablo-like uh, uh, strategy there. But uh, maybe the next time around they could. And I will say that I definitely prefer them doing action RPGs to you know, samey, oldie, menu-based Chrono Trigger ripoffs. So I would really like to see them, you know, as a teacher would say, you know, A for effort, keep on going. Uh, I'd rather they go back to turn-based myself. Why is that? I prefer turn-based games. I, I like the action RPGs, like when they, uh, you know, as a, as a change. They can be okay, but too many of them are really repetitive. And I like action RPGs, like, I don't know, Monster Hunter or Dark Souls. And yes, I just called Dark Souls an action RPG. Bear with me, whatever. <laughs> I just called Monster Hunter an action RPG. Bear with me, whatever. But like those games, the, what those games have in common is that you can't just hack and slash through them. You, you really have to think about it. One of the reasons that I like kind of became okay with Final Fantasy VII's new approach was that it seemed to mix kind of the good elements of tactical planning that you will see in a turn-based game with action games rather than just being a Kingdom Hearts knockoff. And so I was like, yeah. okay, I don't feel as upset about this as I did a little bit ago. <laughs> right. See, I'm, I, I do appreciate where you're coming from, but if I have a mindless action RPG once in a while, it doesn't bother me. Uh, I don't know. I, I find mindless action RPGs really boring. I make you think, but you can like think about something else. There's a reason that I there's a reason that I don't play Musou games either. That's true. Musou games are a little too simple for me. Yeah. As for Tokyo RPG Factory, I mean, what do you think their niche is at this point? Like, where are they going? 
I am trying to figure that out because I am not sure. I think someone must be buying their games because they keep on coming. Uh, I mean, they, must... they have that Square Enix marketing machine behind them, and there are people who will always kind of crave Japanese games, so they have a built-in audience, right? Well, they do, but at the same time, we're not in, like, 2010 anymore. There's, like, a lot of people making really great JRPGs. Like, you know, we're, we'll, in a minute, we'll be talking about Dragon Quest for the, the Switch, and, uh, you know, you, you got Trials of Mana, another game we'll be talking about at some point. It's just... The, JR- the, the JRPG genre is not hurting right now, and uh, I feel like if, okay, if a game like I Am Satsuna came out during that, you know, dull period that you know, maybe it'd be more justifiable, maybe, you know, be have more fans. I don't know. I, I It's funny, because I haven't met too many big Tokyo RPG fans, uh, Tokyo RPG Factory fans. They're at, they, I guess they're out there, otherwise Square Enix would have said, well, okay, we're pulling the pulling the plug on you guys. Maybe I don't know. It's very mysterious. I'll say this for Tokyo RPG Factory: most of the RPGs you just cited are from existing franchises, and mm-hmm. most of the big RPGs that we are getting these days are from things that we already know, like Final Fantasy or Fallout or Mass Effect or whatever, Trials of Mana, Persona. I like that Tokyo RPG Factory is consistently making new IPs. Yes. And I like that they seem to be creating more of an identity for themselves. I can definitely see Oninaki being better received than their past efforts. Uh, uh, certainly looks better. And I think that it is admirable when I see a studio creating new games rather than just kind of riffing on the properties that are really familiar. So I'm never going to begrudge a company that's coming out and trying to be at least somewhat original. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. And as I've like kind of said here, uh, I do feel like the story they have going on is, is quite original and quite interesting and is probably the, the game's greatest strength. So it is at $50, uh, which is uh, fairly pricey. Would you kind of recommend it at that price point? Uh, I'd say wait for a sale, frankly. I always feel guilty saying something like that because wait for a sale is a huge part of what ails the games industry with the devaluing and games and everything. But at the same time, there's so many games out there, <laughs> you know, that it can be really hard to be like, well, 50 bucks for this? Uh, uh, maybe I'll wait. Yeah, um, it, it just kind of feels a little bit more like a, you know, a twenty nine ninety nine RPG or, you know, nineteen ninety nine RPG. I was I was actually a little surprised to learn that the price was forty nine ninety nine. I don't know if that's the highest a Tokyo RPG factory game has ever been. That's because our expectations of price have been completely ruined by downloadable games. Oh, tell me about it. I understand. I I know I am the problem as well as anyone. Which is funny because we had a whole argument, I think, last week about Sushi (laughs) Striker. We did, yes. But Sushi Striker, it was was a new IP. It was original and it had great production value. Yeah, it was cute. I did. I I thought it was cute. Ultimately, I thought that it wasn't that deep or that interesting. And I bounced off it pretty quick, but I, I did like the concept behind it. Yeah, it was actually quite delicious looking. It's also quite dark, because yeah. <laughs> all I could I think was, was well, yep, uh, this, we won't have sushi in 20 years, that's for sure. Yeah, unfortunately, I think it was a little bit, you know, a little bit of prophecy there. Uh, sad. Okay, speaking of Dragon Quest, you were talking about Dragon Quest Eleven S. There's a 10-hour demo out on the Nintendo Switch right now. I've been meaning to download it, but I've been playing another game for review. A game that's frankly been kicking my ass, I should add. (laughs) 
I'm making, I'm slowly but surely making progress. Thank God they gave me a lot of time uh, to really work on it. Uh, the upshot of that, one consequence of that, is that I haven't had a chance to play either Dragon Quest XI-S or Remnant from the Ashes, which has been getting a lot of positive buzz as a kind of co-op uh, Soulsborne game. Or, for that matter, a game that I've been really looking forward to, which is Rebel Galaxy Outlaw. As always, there are way too many dang games. But, Nadia, you've been playing the Dragon Quest XI-S demo on Switch... Uh, there have been some comparisons being made to the PS4 version. Mm-hmm. So far, it's looking really good. Your original headline for the article that you wrote on the site today was that basically it kind of had all the makings of a definitive edition. Uh, yes, definitely. If you look at our site right now, actually, you will see um, someone made a comparison video already to kind of compare uh, not just the the uh, Nintendo Switch and PS4 versions, but for fun, they also put the 3DS version in there. But, of course, we're mostly interested in the PS4 versus Switch. And when I first started playing the demo myself, originally I was like, wow, I, I just don't notice a difference. Now, of course, it's been quite a long time since I played Dragon Quest XI on the PS4. And when you look at the demo, uh, sorry, when you look at the video comparing the Switch version with the PS4 version, you will see differences. You will see um, textures are definitely not as sharp and nature effects, for lack of a better term, are not quite as impressive. Like, uh, on the Switch, water isn't... Water still looks good, but it's not as, like, you know, clear and and transparent as it is on the PlayStation 4. Uh, Leaves on the trees don't look quite as sharp. Uh, You don't see the wind blowing through them either quite as uh, vividly as you you do on the PlayStation 4. But in the grand scheme of things, uh, you know, if I didn't notice that in the first pass, you're probably not going to notice it yourself, especially if you're playing Dragon Quest XI for the first time on on the Switch. And uh, I will say that the comparison video, that the one thing that, um, that uh, surprised me most is that uh, the uh, frame rate seemed to hold quite steady. Uh, I didn't notice any dips, and he didn't record any dips, the person who took the video. Now, granted, this was one part of the game. It could be very different once uh, the full thing is out. It could be very different in, in bigger areas, especially like you know the more open areas like the overworld. But uh, it's it's looking very, very good. And then you consider the fact that the Switch version is going to have the 16-bit version uh, as an option. It's going to have new story content, new character stories, uh, a lot of little tweaks like your, your party members falling behind you and, and kind of reflecting their visual changes whenever they change armor. Uh, and most of all, and this is something that's apparent from the demo, the orchestrated soundtrack is so much better. Uh, than the synthesized version on the PlayStation 4. So I feel like that alone is practically worth the price of admission That in, and the fact, of course, you can play in handheld. So it, it, it's looking quite good. I, I am very impressed. I'm eagerly awaiting for the final product. I knew that I... I feel vindicated, Nadia. Yeah, I guess you were right all along, Kat, as usual. Wait. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Nadia knows uh, that I'm the one to butter up. Uh, yeah, no, I... Uh, you may recall that when it came on PS4, I was having a little, I was struggling a bit with kind of the pace. I wasn't super keen on playing it on TV. I was mm-hmm. really not enjoying the music at all. And I was like, I don't know. I, I think I need to put this one aside and wait for it to come out on Switch. I never expected it to come out a full year later, just a year later. That that's a, that was a very pleasant surprise. Yeah, I was uh, I was very happy to to find out that it was coming, and um, I don't know if this is true or not, but I did hear that they kind of had to practically rebuild the game from the ground up for the Switch. 
Yeah, they were having some trouble with the engine, if I recall correctly. Yeah, I think uh, I think it uses Unreal Engine 4, and that was, I think, one of the... I don't think Square Enix uses that engine very often. I remember them telling me something about that when I, when I saw the game in Japan before it came out. So, of course, I don't think that engine plays very nicely with the Switch, so I can see why there was a lot of rebuilding done. Well, a lot of engines don't. So just look at the Frostbite <laughs> engine. <laughs> That's true. You got a point there. But I think that it's I, they must have fast-tracked it or something because, I, I don't know, they were probably like, well, let's strike while the iron is hot and the switch is still a thing and get this thing out as fast as possible and also kind of build off the, the fact that it was very popular with the Japanese audience and the Japanese audience. Um, if I recall correctly, the switch may have actually already surpassed the PS4 install base over in Japan. So yeah, I think it quite recently did that, and um, I think actually it was very smart of them to release a really good meaty demo alongside the promise that hey, if you buy the retail version, your progress transfers over. Because from what I've been seeing on social media, is you have that switch effect where people who like you kind of let the game pass them by. Uh, the first time around are, are picking it up for the Switch, or at least downloading the demo for the Switch. And so far, the from what I've seen, the reception seems to be quite positive. People are really having a good time with it. It's the definition of a game that I would play on Switch. Because, it, yeah, yeah. because it's like picking up a good book, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm the kind of person who will pick up a book and read a chapter or so, then put it down. And then I want to just be able to pick up the book immediately again and read a couple pages, put it down, right? As opposed to, I have now blocked off two hours in which to sit (laughs) on my chair and read this book. It is the only thing that I am doing, right? Yeah. So with the Switch version of DQ11, you know, I can put it on the Switch, maybe pick it up for a few minutes before going to bed or something, uh, turn off my Switch, put it away. Or if I happen to be watching a show, I can be playing it then. And uh, maybe the pacing won't be as much of a bother bother to me. And also I can get a lot further into the game and start to appreciate it a lot more. I mean, of course, I'll want to have the headphones on to be able to appreciate the, 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 the that wonderful orchestral soundtrack that I've been waiting for and all of that. But, uh, I mean, we'll get to that point. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, I will say, though, I'm the kind of person who can't just read it like a chapter of a book. I, I get completely engrossed in it. Interesting. I, I am not like that. It is it is a rare thing these days that I just get so engrossed in a game I can't pull myself away. Now that's really interesting because I'm the opposite. Really? Yeah. Uh, is worse is actually far worse with books. I find if I get into a book, I I, I just forget everything else. Like I I literally cannot control myself. Interesting. Because when yeah. I'm playing when I am playing a game. Usually what happens is that I like kind of get into it and I'm playing it for a little while and then I'll get to a point where like, okay, time to stop. And I know a game is good when I don't want to stop and I want to keep going. Mm -hmm. Monster Hunter was one of those games, right? Where I would finish whatever I wanted to do and then I would just be kind of tooling around. Yeah. (laughs) Being like, I should stop now. Can't, don't have enough time to go into another encounter, but maybe if I just... Take one last look at a new weapon that I can forge or something. Yeah, I find games like that, games with a lot of systems, uh, in particular I had it with Fire Emblem, uh, you finish a big fight, whatever, and then you're like, okay, I should put it down now, but then it's like, oh, well, you have like all these supports to catch up on, all these, you have to re-equip your, your characters, you know, see if they need any class changes, and just take care of all that maintenance, and before you know it, you're back in another fight. 
I know, because you spend all your time building up your character, and then you're like, well, I gotta try him out. <laughs> you gotta try him out. You gotta test him. You gotta give him a test drive. Uh, and then you're like, well, I'm already this far into the battle. I might as well keep playing until I finish. There you go. It makes sense, right? It was the same with FIFA, where mm-hmm. I would be playing through. I'm like, well, I just need to get to the transfer window. And then I the, and then I get to the transfer window. It's like, okay, I'm signing all these players. Well, I got to try these players out in a game. <laughs> oh, well, this didn't go super well. But if I mess around with the formation... Okay, well, it'll only be 15 minutes. I can play one more game. Why is it three in the morning? <laughs> Five hours later. Yeah, I mean, those games with their addictive loops can really get me. It's usually the games that have me making really, in- the kind of management sims or simulators that have me making really interesting decisions. There have been a few nights that I've completely lost to Civilization, for example. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so I will be picking up uh, Dragon Quest XI-S at a certain point and i i do i really do want to get through this game but uh you know i also have a bunch of other games that i need to play as well it's almost sports game season nadia so i'm gonna have to be playing those it's already started with madden yeah and also i'm going to be completely off the grid uh from tuesday to sunday i'm not even going to have any devices on me it's gonna be crazy i thought you said you're bringing your switch because uh bus ride oh yeah i'll be bringing the switch on the bus ride but that's only you know a certain block of time. Yeah. But the rest of then, the time, like for the rest of the week, I will not be playing my Switch. Are you going to like bury it in the dirt like an animal, like <laughs> saving their food? God, I hope not. I don't think that would be very good for the Switch. No, I'm literally going to be putting it into a bag, like a Ziploc bag, uh-huh. because the desert, the dust gets into everything. Oh, I can I can only imagine what that would do to the Joy-Cons. Jeez. Oh, yeah. No. So you, you you have to seal them up and keep them in a, a secure location because the dust will, like, completely F up your electronics and everything. So Jeez, deserts, man. Yeah, and uh, the playa is especially bad like that. Mm-hmm. But, okay. Nadia, I think it's time for a mailbag. All right, thanks to everybody who wrote in to us. Let's get to the mailbag, Nadia. The first one is, <laughs> as they would say at a convention, not so much a question as an observation. Mm-hmm. This one's from Jamie Alston. I really enjoyed the console RPG quest episode about the Game Boy a couple weeks ago. What resonated with me most was the discussion of Pokemon. When I first played Red and Blue, it was actually the first RPG I'd ever played, though I was oblivious to the genre at the time. It wasn't until I later played the FF7 demo in Star Ocean's Second Story that I realized in retrospect that Pokemon was my primer for the RPG genre and helped me to understand its concepts like HP, buffs, debuffs, and elemental weaknesses and resistance. Without the Game Boy, I might not have gotten into RPGs and therefore I might not have ever tuned into Axe of the Blood God, but I'm glad I did. Thank you, James. Uh, Or Jamie, sorry. Uh, Yeah, no, I... I think Shane Bettenhausen has said in the past that Pokemon is basically uh, Training Wheels Dragon Quest, or at least that was the original version. Yeah, it's, I was actually thinking about that, and it's funny when I when I consider it because, yes, it is absolutely like, if you're playing the single-player game, it is absolutely like, you know, RPG light. But if you go into the competitive scene, you had better know everything there is to know about every single move, every single effect, um, we're talking about buffs and debuffs. I, I find that I don't use buffs and debuffs that often when I'm playing through the main story. But 
they are absolutely necessary if you want to survive in a multiplayer battle. And you got to be really keenly aware of what you are doing. Uh, I mean, as the if you've ever seen like the Pokemon World Championships, obviously you're not going to survive long if you don't have buffs and debuffs. So it, it is really interesting how how in depth Pokemon can be as an RPG to someone who's looking for it. If you are not looking for it. Uh, you do not have to bother with that at all. You can just enjoy the story for what it is. And that's not even possible with uh, with with a lot of RPG series. Like, I would say uh, Dragon Quest, for example, it's, it's pretty vital to know about the buffs and, debuff- and the debuffs, uh, even if you are pay- playing just, you know, kind of a, a, a casual single-player experience. Well, but grade schoolers were playing the original Dragon Quest back in the day. Although I think, like, it's a little bit more complicated now. Like, when I started playing... Uh, Dragon Quest. I don't think there was any like kabuffs or you know de- saps or whatever. Uh, it was all just this, the 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 uh, spells were very straightforward. But more to the point, I don't think that a lot of people discuss just the magic trick that Game Freak has managed in taking what is ex- an extremely complicated RPG and managing to distill it in such a way that maybe a five year old can pick it up and really enjoy it, despite the yeah. fairly complicated mechanics at play. Yeah, they've done, like, a really good job about that. To say nothing, the fact that, like, so many of the character designs are so iconic now, and even the, the ones that aren't iconic are, just, are usually just a lot of fun. It's really, it's always been a very attractive sort of RPG. I, it's no wonder that kids are just, like, pulled to it like magnets. Yeah, there's only a handful of game companies out there that can do the what Game Freak can do. Certainly Nintendo's one of them. Blizzard's another mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Where they make the sense of accessibility almost effortless. Yes, absolutely. It is so rare that I pick up a game these days. Yeah, like game, all games are meant to be accessible, but usually it feels somewhat tedious to get into initially as I'm trying to learn everything. Either it's too simple and it's like, this is boring, or it's really complex to the point where like I'm having to read guides and figure everything out and I'm trying to... Be like, what the heck is going on here? What does this mean? What's that? Yeah. What button yeah, exactly. is here? Whereas Nintendo games, Blizzard games, you know, I pick up the game. I'm like, oh, I understand this. And then I, the next thing I know is like, well, there's a lot of interesting stuff that's obviously happening right below the surface, but I'm having a great time now. Maybe if I just kind of read some guides on what some of the more interesting stuff is. Oh, it's three in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, no, I read the whole wiki. Yeah, no, exactly. So Pokemon has always been really masterful at that, I think. Mm-hmm. But, okay, next one. This is from John Rowland. Although we often talk about things being cliched and overdone in a bad way, what are some tropes that you actually secretly love? Personally, I love that moment in an RPG when suddenly it's revealed that there's an ancient evil of some kind, and that's <laughs> the true villain after all. I oh, I'm still a sap for romance. Even the I was just looking at like some videos of the of the the support conversations that um, I probably won't ever see in Fire Emblem because God knows I can't afford to play that game over and over and over again. And I, I still get kind of all mushy at them. I think uh, I was watching like I think the the protagonist uh, Byleth plus uh, Lawrence, and it was just so disgustingly stupidly cute. I was just like a puddle inside, even though it was so. I, I wouldn't, like, you know, show this to, like, a, a normal person because they'd laugh me off the face of the earth for, for being such an idiot. But uh, I, I just love it. It's funny. For this particular dis- conversation, I ended up looking up TV tropes because 
they're usually pretty good at having a long list of, you know, different cliches and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And they have the grand list of console RPG cliches. <laughs> How many do you think they have? Uh, it's got to go on forever, right? It goes all the way up to 192, at least. Jeez, wow. And got to be like 90% of those are JRPGs. Number one, the sleepyhead rule. The teenage male lead will begin the first day of the game by oversleeping. Of course he will. I, mean, I like that one. Yeah, me too. It's, it's so like, you know, you think about how many RPGs are about problems escalating. And, you know, when they all kind of start with some idiot oversleeping on his big day, it's, it's pretty charming. Well, if you think of a video game as a lucid dream, effectively mm-hmm. you are waking up into a new world. Ooh, that's deep. Yes. Uh, no, my be- beloved peasant village. The... <laughs> oh no, it's all ashes now. Yeah, the the hero's village is totally destroyed. Yeah, it got destroyed, like even though like the it could be like an emperor from some like humongous you know kingdom from across the sea, but he really cares about your stupid rando village, and it's like burnt to the ground. The Logan's Run rule: RPG characters are young, very young. Yeah, I was never a big fan of that one because I like, as I was saying earlier, I'm getting old. I don't want to bother with children. Uh, I'm fine with adults. Well, that's more of a Japan thing, honestly, where often they are teenagers. Or if you look at games, uh, a lot of Western RPGs, they fall more into the classical kind of fantasy trope where they're middle-aged white dudes in armor. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Interesting disparity there. The single parent rule where they only have a a mom or a dad. Uh, Of course. Um, Usually it's a mom. I I still wonder what happened to Kronos' father. We, We don't find out ever. Though it was kind of averted in Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire, in which you meet your character's mom, the dad is actually running a gym. I thought that was actually really cool. And of course, in the anime, uh, Ash's mom is married to Mr. Mime anyway. Uh, The compulsories, there's always a fire dungeon, an ice dungeon, a sewer maze, a misty forest, a derelict ghost ship, a mine, a glowing crystal maze, an ancient temple full of traps, a magic floating castle, and a technological dungeon. That makes sense. I will say that for cliches, I still love Misty Forests. I just think they're neat. The Luddite rule, which is technology is evil. Of course. That was, um, when I, when I first played Wild Arms, that was a big theme in the game. And I think it was new to me at that point. So I thought it was a really cool theme. And then the obligatory party members, the spunky princess, the demure soft-spoken female mage, the tough-as-nails female warrior, the achingly beautiful gothy swordsman, the big, tough, angry guy, the hero's best friend, <laughs> the grim, selfish mercenary, the guy, who, the character who's actually a spy for the bad guys, the weird bonus character who acquires a bizarre series of side quests to make them effective, and the nauseatingly cute mascot who is useless in all battles. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Um, I will say that for the uh, nauseatingly cute mascot, um, Mog from Final Fantasy VI, uh, if you knew how to use him, he could absolutely destroy things. I, I used him in uh, my first playthrough of Final Fantasy VI, and he was like front line, center when it came to when it came time to battle Kefka. ProZD, uh, who came to I know popularity because of Vine and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, does a really good observational humor about these kinds of tropes. <laughs> oh, I, I absolutely love those. When my abs- one of my favorites is like when uh, it's called uh, when you name the RPG character after yourself, and the bad guy's like, "You will never save Prince Horus. I, King Dragon, <laughs> will strike you down, Dennis." <laughs> That's me. <mean. laughs> <laughs> I, I just died. 
I think my favorite one is where the the main they encounter the character who's going to definitely betray them. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that, too. They're all really good. I'm going to remake the world. And then several hours later, ha ha, you never suspected it. We never suspected it. What, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, those are pretty, those are pretty apt. In all honesty, though, I don't actually like RPGs that lean really, really heavily into the classical kind of cliches and tropes. Um, I like the ones that subvert them whenever possible or avoid them. Yeah, I usually prefer those. I do, I'm fine with them used, like, cliches used sparingly. Um, I will say, I'll give, I'll throw a bone to RPGs here. I always find dragons interesting in every context, so they can use all the dragons they want. Would you say Dragon Quest Eleven falls into the cliche, the, the classical JRPG cliche trap? Um, here's the thing with Dragon Quest. Most of the games start out like that, and then they throw something at you that just blows your mind. And turn, the game turns really dark and gives you a twist you didn't see coming. So I'll give it a pass. I mean, those games are more kind of classical high adventure anyway. They cool. they, they aren't trying to reinvent themselves. Uh, and they do what they do really, really well. So I'm not going to be too down on it. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, is that they're not trying to just be an anime, as it were. They, yeah. Which a lot of RPGs are. Um, That's true. Whereas Dragon Quest feels more like it's leaning into classical fantasy yeah definitely but um it, it's funny even though it kind of has some of those cliches that we just talked about it doesn't pile them on it, it spreads them out quite nicely yeah i mean like would you would you call persona 5 cliche necessarily i guess it leans into high school anime tropes yeah it, it, there are tropes but they they are very different as far as rpgs are concerned and i still feel like persona 5 you know it was still different enough from Persona 4 thematically, thematic-wise that it didn't bother me at all. And so many of these games go back to the... So many of these cliches, as it were, go back to, like, the 16- and 32-bit era. And, I mean, there are RPGs that still lean into them to some extent, but I don't know. I don't usually play them. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, there are definitely still, like, a, an audience for that. I'm going like, to say the Tales series probably leans into them pretty heavily. Yeah, I think so. Um, same with, like, you know, Trails of Cold Steel has a lot of some of that going on, even though I, I still love the game. It, it's still, you have your, like, you know, horny professor and, you know, distant uh, distant female character who warms up to you. Sundari, that's the word I'm looking for. I think that the trick with Trails of Cold Steel is that it rapidly becomes this tangled political drama yeah uh fire emblem uh three houses is very much the same way where it kind of starts out the characters you think you know what the character you think you know where the characters are going but then they pretty much don't all i ask is that a game swerve yeah and uh there's a lot of rpgs that do have really good swerves to them uh again dragon quest is a series that swerves really well uh we just mentioned fire emblem that had a fantastic swerve but as for the cliche that's overdone, and but you actually kind of secretly love, I mean, I always like when the main character seemingly dies, but then they're reborn with a, like a totally boss new form and a really cool and wicked weapon. Yeah, uh, although I was going to say, okay, Chrono, but he's just kind of wakes up and he's like, hey, what the hell is going on? Where am I? I am he's... back. <laughs> oh shit, I'm back. The Hi, trick everyone. with Chrono, though, is that you can just let Chrono die. Like, Chrono stays dead. That's true. That's true. That's very depressing. It's very true. 
which is totally like awesome to me. <laughs> yeah, that um, that was a big surprise to me when that happened. I was playing Chrono Trigger for the first time. Seeing a protagonist die like that was not something that happened in RPGs very often at the time. Okay, next one. This is Ben Cranks, and they use a long and spoilery example from Fire Emblem Three Houses for this question. Mm-hmm. But the answer, the question is, what RPGs use tragedy well? Oh, uh, I'm going with the cliche answer. I'm saying Final Fantasy VI. Really? Yes. Uh, Final Fantasy VI, its themes were something I didn't appreciate very much until I got older. And I realized how much of it is about persevering in the face of everything freaking sucking. Uh, so, of course, the world ends. Kefka ends it all. Like, you wake up in this world that's just like it's a year into its, its death practically already at this point it's just everything's poisoned everything's awful uh, but you still have you still come across people who are like trying to hang in there and trying to hang on and trying to rebuild things and that's a major theme of the game what is the point of carrying on if if everything looks so hopeless and uh eventually you gradually get your answer i think um i don't want to get dark or anything but i think that's a, a worthwhile thing to be having right now <laughs> Yeah, I, I was just thinking that as it came out of my mouth. Uh, what about Mother 3? Mother 3 is an interesting one because I feel like things just get worse and worse and worse and worse until the end of the game and then it's done. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but that's, I mean, it's certainly a bittersweet ending, right? As far as I know, we don't know what happened in the end. Uh, have you ever seen the ending for Mother 3? Mother 3 is a game about, uh, oh God, it's so sad to even think about uh, Mother 3 is about uh, supposedly these nowhere islands and there's a dragon sleeping under the island and they say if you pull out all six of the needles anchoring this dragon to the underground, the world will end. And all six needles are pulled out and you see the world starting to end. And that's where the game ends. And it kind of implies that everyone's okay, but it doesn't give you any sort of confirmation whatsoever. Not to mention the last fight is against uh, your twin brother who's been turned into like this monstrosity by porky oh god and then like it's just it's just heartbreaking to even think about because the end in the ending like in the end battle you know he's close that's his name he kind of hears his mother calling him from beyond from the beyond and telling him to come back and like rest with her and it's just like uh yeah that's a really depressing game (laughs) i'm sorry that wasn't a good example (laughs) so a couple things I, i think the kind of traditional tragedy would be something like you would say a Shakespearean tragedy would yeah. be somebody who it loses or has a bad ending because of their own personal flaws. Right. And I feel like you don't see that much in RPGs actually. No, I suppose you're right about that. I mean, in that context, I can see what you mean about Mother 3 because, of course, it is a, a lot goes wrong because Lucas is a bit of a coward and he overcomes that, but... If he overcame it earlier, uh, he probably would have had a happier life. Well, there's a lot of stuff out of his control, don't get me wrong. And he's more or less blameless for a lot of what happens, but yeah. And I feel like so many video games in particular, um, but also especially RPGs, are kind of these power trips in which you are stepping into the shoes of the, of the main character, right? And the whole goal is to become more powerful until the end of the game. And... I suppose that in some sense, like, the best RPGs can have it so that you can be completely undone by the choices that you make in the game. Mm -hmm. That you can go down a dark path, as it were. 
But yeah. even then, a lot of these games, if you make evil choices, you aren't necessarily going to have a sad... You know, your your character will still kind of have a happy ending in the context of, you know, what they set up. I suppose, I suppose you could say Mass Effect is a tragedy in the sense that you can set it up in such a way that your character is making choices that they think is for the good of everything. But in mm-hmm. reality, uh, their ends justify the means approach is has bad and en- has bad implications for how the game's going to end. Right. Yeah, you're right. Not too many games do that. And then there are a lot of like individual characters uh, in RPGs who will have kind of tragic arcs, I suppose, especially in games like Bioware and uh, especially in games like Dragon Age and such, where they'll want to do something like restore their race or whatever. And their hubris is their downfall. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it counts as a tragedy, but I was always surprised. This is something I wrote about on the site. You'll probably find it. I was always surprised that uh, the Mana games, particularly Secret of Mana, didn't really give you happy endings a lot of the time. Um, they gave you, like, bittersweet em- uh, endings at best or just, like, you know, it's an ending. That's enough. That kind of ending. <laughs> Like, in Secret of Mana, you have the, the female character, Prim, who's chasing her boyfriend, and she finds him, finally, only for him to basically sacrifice himself and, and die. Uh, you lose your, your party member, the, the sprite, because they, they die once Mana disappears from the world, which is what happens when you defeat the Mana Beast. Your choices are either let the Mana Beast, you know, destroy the fortress and the world and restore Mana to, its, to what it was, or defeat the Mana Beast and kind of rebuild the world from there. And it's like, well, you choose the latter, but the sprite dies. You, n- you never see them again. And that just always struck me as a very kind of sad ending. It's like, eh, the best you get is you get to go home to your stupid dork village where the exiled you in the first place. I guess that's kind of an ending, a, a win. I want to add, I apologize to everybody for spoiling spoiling these games for you <laughs> with these uh, descriptions of their tragic endings. Yeah, we're sorry. Sorry, not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. Uh, Well, here's a spoiler for Xenoblade Saga 3. Or Xenosaga 3. Sorry, not Xenoblade Saga. Xenosaga Mm -hmm. Episode 3. Uh, Cosmos. It ends with Cosmos just drifting through space. That's not a very good fate. That's kind of sad, actually. Is she conscious? And everybody's dead. Oh, dear. And it seemed to be kind of setting up a fourth game, but it never really happened. No, it clearly didn't. Oh, that's so that they're drifting forever, kind of like Mega Man on the, stuck on the moon in Mega Man Legends. He'll never get off. Wow, is that how it ends? Mega Man Legends 2 ends with Mega Man stuck on the moon. Uh, he goes up to Elysium, which is like an old human colony. Uh, it's a whole really actually complex story, believe it or not. Uh, the long story short is he goes up there, he gets stranded, and Roll and tron bon are supposed to get together and build a rocket except they're fighting over it and it just wasn't getting off the ground so to speak and uh it, people thought okay well you know Mega Man legends 3 they'll resolve this and we all know what happened there so there are a lot of rpgs that do actually have downer endings if you think about final fantasy 7 you know you do ultimately kind of save the world maybe but it's kind of ambiguous yeah You'd, you don't know in the original final fantasy 7 i choose not to acknowledge the sequels whether yeah, or not right. humanity was spared, you only see a grown over Midgar and like Red 13 and his cubs. You don't know if humanity survived. And uh, Aerith sacrificed herself to make it happen. 
Yeah, I always, at first when I was a kid, I didn't appreciate the ending for Final Fantasy VII, but then I realized, wow, it took a lot of guts to, to give us that ending. And you're absolutely right, compilation of Final Fantasy VII, Advent Children, all that. Uh, let's pretend it never happened, because I think it ruins one of the greatest ambiguous endings of all time. Uh, because there's actually a um, a sequence bef- that's, like, say, in the middle of the game, Final Fantasy VII, where you talk to Bugenhagen, who read XIII's grandfather, and he says quite clearly... We don't know if we're going to survive. You know, the whole point of Holy is to eliminate all planetary threats. You know, it could be humans. It could, might not be humans. We don't know. And we didn't know until compilation of Final Fantasy VII. If I might uh, complain about a tragic ending. Mm-hmm. Uh, spoiler alert. At the end of Final Fantasy X, uh, Titus disappears because he comes from a dream world or something? They never really explained that whole thing to me. <laughs> they just want to make you sad. Yeah, like, it was a dream of something, 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 and then once he completes his task, he vanishes. But he doesn't really vanish. He comes back. And then they undo yeah. it at the end of uh, 10-2, and he's reunited with uh, Yuna, and it's all good. For some reason. Yeah, yeah, for some reason. <laughs> She just steps it's, out of the ocean, and everybody's waiting there, and she runs out into the ocean, and they hug, and everybody's happy. Uh, that's Yay. really kind of cowardly. Like, if you're gonna, if you're gonna like, give us an ending where the main character bites it, like, just stick to it, please. Something like Final Fantasy VII, again. See, I wouldn't care. I just don't think they did. I, I think that the mechanics of why he disappeared were too convoluted and kind of stupid and not really <laughs> explainable. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's when Final Fantasy started getting, as you say, convoluted. Well, it's Final Fantasy XII was much better. That's true. Final Fantasy XII was had its stuff together. It was quite good in that regard. Twelve's better than ten. So oh, is yeah. seven, eight, nine, four, five, six. Actually, ten wasn't that good. Sorry, guys. Yeah, I, I drew that conclusion when you started to go down the list. <laughs> it's better than the NES games. Okay, that's fair. I, I'll I'll take that. I mean, maybe not as good as the original Final Fantasy 1. Nah, nah, it's better than 1. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, so that's my hot take. Final Fantasy 10, bottom tier uh, Final Fantasy game. Ooh, what yeah. do you think, folks? Vote with your phones. I think it's better than 13 or 15, I'll say that much. 15, you, you like, did you not like 15? I can't remember. I liked 15. I even gave uh, it a fairly good review. Okay, uh, Maybe Final 15 Fantasy. is better than 10. But at I this point, like, it's by degrees. I feel like 15, for all its flaws, it still had a great cast, and that kind of carries it. I thought 10 had a better cast. Did you? Nah, I like 15. So nah, 10 is a much more likable cast. But 10 has the boys. The 10 the has boys. a freaking panther guy who That's is true. Yuna's, uh, and also the, the goth magic girl with the little cactar <laughs> doll. I actually had a, have a friend who did a cosplay of her. Lulu, I think her name was? Yes. Yes, she did a freaking excellent cosplay of that character. Holy moly. Also, Final Fantasy X had Blitzball. Okay, okay, so that, that, that elevated a bunch of, uh, you know, over a lot of the kind of lower tier Final Fantasies is Blitzball. And honestly, if you did put a gun to my head and said, play either Final Fantasy IX or Final Fantasy X, I'd probably, probably pick ten over nine. Yeah, I could see why, unless I could have the version of Final Fantasy nine that I could speed things up. Yeah. But moving on, uh, Dr. Level Up says, what do you all think about Greedfall? 
I know Spiders and Focus Home Interactive had some hit and miss, let's face it, mostly missed titles in the last few years, but I am really excited for Greedfall. Do you think this developer can come in and fill the old Bioware shoes? Nadia, have you been paying any attention to Greedfall? Um, a little bit. I do know it has to do with like kind of settling or being a colonialist on a uh, an island. You, you land there and it's populated already by like elves and they're you're like kind of magical guardians and what have you and you can decide to join forces with them or you know join forces with the other uh invaders and, and kind of push out the 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 elves so i find it interesting and obviously not subtle uh allegory of of things but um it, it seems pretty interesting i don't know if i'll like jump on it as soon as it comes out though tackling colonialism interesting <laughs> It's the impression it gives me. It's like you arrive on this island, and it's like okay, you can you can choose to you know be okay to the the natives there, even though you're still you know a stranger in strange land. But you can also choose to 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 be jerks and try to conquer them. So I'm looking at Spider's uh, catalog of games, mm-hmm. and I don't know most of them. <laughs> <laughs> what are some? I feel like I know That's, Spider, but there's something called Technomancer. That sounds very familiar, but I never played. The it. last game was Technomancer as a 68 on Xbox One. Mm-hmm, yeah. There's a game called Bound by Flame, has a 53 on PS4 Metacritic. Ouch. And people say that people never give like bad reviews. There's a game called Mars Warlogs, again like in the 60 range. Maybe they've improved. I don't know. But uh, for that reason, I would be hesitant. Yeah, definitely. Um, I will I will definitely have eyes on it, and I will see where it goes. If it is good, you can be sure it'll end up on the show. But I did watch a bunch of videos uh, not too long ago, actually, because I heard some people kind of, like, talking it up a little bit. Uh-huh. And, I mean, it does look good, like, from a graphics perspective, uh, I like the kind of open world elements. It looks like kind of mm-hmm. a mix of Assassin's Creed and Dragon Age. Seems to mix in a little bit of turn-based combat. It seems to have a gigantic skill tree to work from. I like the kind of 18th century piratical uh, meets pirate uh, pirates meets magic aesthetic. Yeah, that's always kind of fun. Yeah, it's like they took uh, Assassin's Creed, the, that one pirate game, Black Flag, and mm-hmm. mated it with... Um, uh, and, and made it with a magical kind of environment and um, cool. I hope it turns out good is what I'm saying because I think we need more developers in that kind of space who aren't named Bioware or Bethesda, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm hoping for the best, definitely. Okay, uh, William Tucker says, here's another intriguing RPG release for Sega Genesis, Buck Rogers' Countdown to Doomsday, a port of an SSI gold box game for PC. As far as I'm aware, the SNES did not get a single gold box port. Even the NES got a version of Pool of Radiance. Playing Buck Rogers on Genesis was my first taste of a PC-style RPG, which I wasn't able to get on SNES. So that might be the only area where the Genesis could be said to have done something that Nintendo didn't, at least as far as RPGs go. I did not look into whether or not the SNES got a gold box port. Um, I do think it's interesting that there are still SSI gold box games coming out well in, into the early 90s, I suppose. Um, and I do think it's funny how it kind of gives lie to the assertion that PC 
RPGs really began on console in 2003 with like KOTOR. <laughs> yeah, no, they were there uh, long before. Uh, they were very clumsy. Uh, I guess one of the first ones I can think of is Shadowgate, which I don't know if it had a PC version, but the interface was very PC-like. Yeah, we were. They were definitely porting uh, PC RPGs and and the like uh, onto the NES and the Sega Genesis and such. Uh, though a game like, uh, you know, it's funny. Like a game like SimCity came out on the Super Nintendo, which you would not think would be a very good fit for the Super Nintendo, given the, the, the point and click kind of nature of the interface. Yeah. But they made it work. They made it work. That's actually a really excellent port, and not only does it work it really has its own personality because nintendo said okay here's what we're going to do with it and they did they kind of really gutted it up we talked about Shadowrun in last week's episode and yes. i got multiple emails from people being like oh my god Shadowrun, i love it so much i kind of regret not playing it as a kid i mean it was interesting yeah it was definitely different it was a definite a different experience that you would have on console but i did like it the way that it kind of brought that world to life on console in a lot of ways but as for uh buck rogers it seems to have been largely lost to history though over in eurogamer they did have a retrospective from somebody who said that it kind of i don't know changed their life or made them the person that they are today oh that's nice that's 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 good for them yeah yeah uh i guess they were saying that they had a genesis but they only had a limited budget and they weren't sure what to pick up and this game with its kind of 60s 50s heck even 30s sci-fi aesthetic just jumped out at them ah i watched some videos of it it looks like xcom uh it looks like a it looks like it was made in the late 80s it looks kind of like xcom honestly Mm. but uh apparently it's brutally hard (laughs) that's pretty funny a brutally hard tactics game on the sega genesis of all consoles based on buck rogers (laughs) yeah and it's yeah buck rogers right yeah, exactly. That's the thing that that I love most about this. It's like, oh, okay, tactics RPG on the on the Genesis. I can I can swallow that. But uh, Buck Rogers. I definitely watched Buck Rogers growing up, though. Uh, I, I think it was on TV somewhere, like maybe Nick at Night or something. Yeah, uh, going about. I, I never really grew up with Nick at Night, but going about what my husband tells me about it, it sounds like it'd definitely be a, a Nick at Night show. What's funny is that I'm pretty sure I got a separate message from somebody else about uh, Buck Rogers. Well, clearly it has influence, or it had influence. Uh, good for you, Buck Rogers. I'm, I'm looking for the message right now from the person who sent me a message about Buck Rogers. Ah, here we go. I think it's time... Uh, this is from Charles. I think it's time you had an Axe of the Blood God that talked about the Gold Box RPGs in detail. I, for one, like the two Buck Rogers games more than the D&D ones, but they're all great time capsules that lay the foundation for Bioware, Witcher, and Bethesda. With how the games have you create a team with skills you need to diversify out and plenty of choices when and how to do things. You can go and try any of them in a browser right now at classicreload.com. The Buck Rogers oh. port for Genesis has many quality of life upgrades that makes it way more palatable than the DOS version. But the DOS version will let you take your team of dudes from Countdown to Doomsday into the sequel, Matrix Cubed. I feel like this is not the first time I have emailed or wrote in about Buck Rogers' Countdown to Doomsday. Maybe back during the grind or game pro days? Best of luck, Cat. So there you go. It's definitely influential. There are people who love it. Yeah, uh, I always kind of love those stories about licensed games that not only end up being good, but end up being influential. Nicholas Norton says, My question, though, relates to my favorite RPG series, Pokemon. 
While I am eagerly awaiting Sword and Shield and love seeing the Pokemon in HD, playing through Octopath really is making me wish Pokemon would return to their sprite roots occasionally. Whenever I am in the mood for a particular art style, I find myself going back to Pokemon Crystal, Platinum, and Pokemon Black quite often. I think I would be amazing if either of the remakes they came out with were the exact same games, just with that Octopath picture book style flair, or if they gave some modern gen experience in that art style. I'm not suggesting that they should abandon their quest for HD beauty, but it would be amazing if they didn't completely abandon that DS era art style. It would capitalize nostalgia and maybe even ameliorate some of the national dex issues if they gave us all 1,000 whatever pocket monsters in that style. Any thoughts? What do you think, Nadia? Um, I really like 3D Pokemon, frankly, but I can also see the appeal of the, the DS sprites in particular. Those were really kind of a, a pocket in time that was just too short. Uh, I am someone, of course, who was big into sprite games. I just wrote that thing about, you know, how Fire Emblem is GBA sprites are a thing of beauty. Uh, I would love to see a compromise, but God knows we're probably never going to get it, where you have the option to switch, like you do, of course, with with Dragon Quest XI. You can switch between the 16-bit and the uh, 3D sprite, uh, 3D artwork. Uh, yeah, I'd love to see that, but it's not going to happen. Uh, yeah, you can never go home again, can you? You really can't, no. You, you gotta appreciate things when you get them. I know why they will never go back to sprites. And the reason they will never go back to sprites is that there is a not insignificant number of people who would take one look at it and just instantly not buy it. Because yeah. for whatever reason, people just, I guess, associate sprites with cheap? Yeah, it's really it's really too bad. And especially with, you think about it, it's like, yeah, we're very nostalgic for sprites, but do you think... If, you know, kids care that much? No, they don't. They grew up something else. Yeah, they Damn really kids. don't give a care. And that's too bad because I think Pokemon Black and White looked really good, honestly. That was yeah. the point in the series in which the sprites were really, like, fully animated and often very detailed and really enjoyable. Uh, they got a lot of, like, attention and care put into them. The attack animations were really good. And... Uh, and and it moved a lot faster than Pokemon Diamond and Pearl, which I really appreciated. And yeah. Yeah. I don't know, like that was kind of my favorite style of Pokemon, and I'm sad that it ended up leaving it behind. Yeah, it's too bad. But you know, don't you always know what's that song? Don't you always know what you got till there's gone? Whatever the hell it's called, parking lot song. As it is now, I think that Pokemon's going to have to adapt because if they want to put out quality games with the resources that they've got, they either are going to have to dramatically expand their studio Mm -hmm. um, or they're going to have to not be a semi-annual franchise. Yeah. uh, There are a lot of people complaining about how, you know, Pokemon is an annual franchise now. I didn't know what they were talking about at first. Then I realized, oh, yeah, it's not like Pokemon Let's Go came out of nowhere. Someone had to work on that. Yeah, I mean, they don't put out new mainline generations every year like and they have different teams working on different games but mm-hmm. uh i mean it seems like game freak is still a relatively you know small outfit for the most part and because they work on such a strict timeline that doesn't give them any margin for error which you absolutely need in this day and age and having moved up into the the console era uh, unless they're prepared to have a studio with more than a thousand people, uh, I I don't know how they can meet the standards that are going to be expected of them, while also you know being able to put something out on the regular. Um, I was just talking to a developer, and I 
can't say who because it's under embargo, but I was asking them about uh, Crunch and everything because they are making a service game that's going to have like tons of updates all the time, right? And I was like, how do you do it? And they're like, well, scale. We have like 10 studios worldwide and more than a thousand people at any given time. And you can just mm-hmm. rotate them through onto the projects and make sure that they're not burned out, you know? And that's where we are right now with these with these games. And I think Game Freak has to accept that they aren't making games for a handheld console anymore and they have to rethink the way that they approach their business model if they want to keep yeah. putting out a quality product. Yeah, I think this whole generation so far has been a learning experience for them. Oh, I have absolutely no doubt. I strongly suspect that they really wanted to do the national decks and mm-hmm. something went wrong on a technical end. And they just weren't able to make it happen. And so they had to compromise. They just did a really bad job of communicating it, unfortunately. Right. Can you imagine bug testing like a thousand Pokemon? (laughs) Oh, no, I can't. But actually, they have these like algorithms and such that will actually go through and find bugs. It's really cool. Oh, that's true. Yeah. These algorithmic uh, Q&A, as it were. Though... Nothing, uh, there's no substitute for a really good QA engineer. Um, no, absolutely not. A friend of mine has often said that the the uh, the best developers are the ones who actually came out of Q&A. I think they're biased yes. because they came out of Q&A as well. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. But yeah, they're not wrong. A Q&A. QA. Oh, <laughs> I just realized. <laughs> Question and answers. Uh, and how trans says... At what point would you say there are too many systems related to a comment you made when you guessed it on Retronauts recently for Final Fantasy Tactics? For example, with Tactics Ogre, characters had alignments, racial origins, and even an elemental alignment in the SNES version, which could adjust their stats based on the type of terrain they were standing on, kind of like with Final Fantasy Tactics Zodiac compatibility. I think that I only get annoyed with systems when they aren't well explained. (laughs) When you, when you start getting into a situation where there's so many hidden systems and it's all kind of like murky and hard to stand, understand and I'm having to parse through giant Google Sheets to even have a vague idea of what's going on, I start getting irritated. <laughs> See Pokemon, actually. <laughs> they do a really good yep. job of obfuscating that with really accessible mechanics, but there was right. a long time where I was like, there's so many hidden systems, and it's driving me insane. Yeah, I can't even imagine what competitive fighters go through and went through, especially in those in those olden days before that sort of information was easily accessible. Well, that was data mining, uh, you know? I know. Where do you think Serebii gets most of their data? There's data mining the games. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, yeah, kids today, man. I would say um, I have a problem where if there are too many systems, I just, you know... I, I have the urge to flee immediately. If I stick it out, I usually end up okay, but I got to kind of get through that original hump. Um, I would say that Fire Emblem Three Houses has the perfect amount of systems for me. It's it's just, you have stuff you got to consider, but it's not too intimidating. But it's, that's not to say I will immediately turn my back on any game that's more complicated. It's just a matter of, as you say, how they present it and how it unfolds. Yeah, I think in the case of Fire Emblem, it seems really intimidating at first, but after you get into the flow of the game, you quickly realize that there's a bit of a ritual to it, and it starts to make sense really quickly. 
And it really does a good job of tutorializing and explaining all the different systems at hand without feeling too overwhelming. And so as a result, it's like surprisingly easy to get into. Yeah, I think what really helps, and I really wish more developers would do this, is the fact that you can go to any sub-menu you want, and if you press X and highlight literally anything on that menu, it will explain what it is. And that's all I ask. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Just allow me to have all of the explain the tooltips right there if I click on something. Yeah, and they don't have to be long by any means. Just give me a, a line of an explainer, and I'll figure out the rest without a problem. I like games that gradually... Uh, introduce their systems so that Mm -hmm. as the systems come along, they kind of refresh the strategy and make me think about the game differently. Uh, I don't like it when a game, there are a lot of games out there that show their hand way too early. And then there's just nowhere to go in terms of character growth. Uh, Anthem had a huge problem with this, honestly, where initially you're like, oh, this is pretty fun. The problem is that they like front loaded the end game. (laughs) Yeah. And so then it just becomes repetitive. Mm-hmm. Man, Anthem. What a mess. Yeah. There was something I was watching recently, excuse me, that said uh, Anthem has fewer view- has fewer viewers uh, on Twitch than Mario Kart. We're not talking about Mario Kart for the Switch. We're talking about Mario Kart for the Wii U. No way. Really? I swear. And they showed the stats and everything. And yep, that's what they were. Wow. Anthem had fewer viewers. It was Man. kind of sad. They need a Realm Reborn style reboot at this point. They really do. It. I. I don't think it's too late for them because, of course, we know how a Realm Reborn turned out. But they really gotta. They gotta admit, okay, we screwed this all up. Let's try again, and we'll do it right this time. I don't think it can happen. Not with EA's corporate culture. That's the problem. I don't see EA saying, "Okay, well, yeah, we screwed this up, guys. Let's let's take it again from the top." It's funny because it always seems like EA wants to do the right thing, but they just keep tripping over their own feet. Or mm. I, I heard that within the EA bubble, they're like, well, we got all these processes and everything, and like we're doing everything right. Why is everybody always being on our case? I don't get it. <laughs> it's like the, the computer and algorithms say we're doing okay. What, what are we doing wrong? The, yeah. mother, the mother brain says we're fine. <laughs> what, what's happening? I just, I think that you need to put somebody with a really clear vision and a lot of creative freedom in charge of that project to Absolutely. get it, like, get it right, as it were. Yes. Right. Yeah. Well, good luck. And it kind of needs a rethink from the ground up, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Like you say, like, I love what Final Fantasy fourteen did. They literally took Meteor and smashed it into the game. So we have a uh, a column that goes up every week over on the site, uh, This Week in Business, and mm-hmm. it's from uh, our friends over at gamesindustry.biz, um, mm-hmm. Brendan Sinclair, the other Canadian. Who, yes, he's the other Torontonian. Whenever we get together, we always talk about hockey, because... Because <laughs> you don't get that conversation from me, unfortunately. Minnesotans and Canadians, it's like the most cliche conversation you can possibly have. But he posted a, a quote from the... Battlefront 2 developers and Mm -hmm. it was along the lines of there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about what what it might have been if we hadn't done loot boxes the way that we did ah yeah that's that's, so sad that's a pretty intense quote I gotta say yeah that really is makes me feel bad for them (laughs) it really does because I mean these, these are still people like putting their not just their heart and souls but all their creative thoughts and and processes into 
into a game. And you and I both know how how hard it can be to to make things and create things. We do it on a daily basis, and it you know sometimes it you don't feel like damn well doing it, but you do it anyway. And it just so much of your energy goes into it, and then to just kind of see it all crumble, it's like uh, I I, I have nothing but sympathy for the developers. Eh, Battlefront 2 wouldn't have gotten as much crap as it did if it were a better game. <laughs> Here's the funny thing. I, I never... The Starfighter combat was amazing in that game. Mm-hmm. Like, the Starfighter segments were so good. So good. Oh, my God. They're the best... They're actually the best thing since Rogue Leader. I'm not joking. And Rogue Leader is one of the best Star Wars games ever made. So, for that reason alone, I always liked it. I got annoyed that they had the stupid kind of loot box thing that threw threw the balance out of whack a little bit. The problem that it was having was that the actual battle on the ground was pretty boring. Right, yeah, because I was going to say, well, what's the problem then? It must be the ground combat. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's not that great. Uh, It's heck of of fun to fly around in a starfighter in that game, but Mm -hmm. everything else, pretty, pretty boring, unfortunately. That's too bad. They're introducing a new mode, and I know this is completely out apart from rpgs but i guess it vaguely ties into anthem or something uh they are introducing a new mode though that's kind of like conquest mode from battlefield so i'm, I'm glad uh-huh. that they're kind of persevering persevering and then continuing to support it yeah you, you gotta give them that i suppose i was just kind of thinking about how destiny 2 had a that rocky start and i don't know how it's doing now to be honest with you but they're still actually adding to it they're still doing it they sure are and it's gonna be out next month yeah you know, I try. You want to talk about, uh, man? I I'm gonna pick it up again and start playing it again because it's installed on my computer on my PS4 right now. Uh-huh. And I've been talking to Eric and Katie about doing another like Destiny Night or something like that. But that game bores me, Nadia. <laughs> I can just imagine you guys playing, and you know, Eric and and Katie are chattering away, and you're just like snoring on the other end, but. Then again, Katie's all, I think Katie would be the first to bounce if something's not really clicking with her. I just don't know that I like shooters that much anymore. Oh, you, has the, is the romance over? I guess. I used to really like shooters once upon a time. I, I, had, I had a torrid affair with Battlefield Bad Company 2, for example. I don't know. When I play shooters now, like I just feel no connection whatsoever to the game. And uh, like I can't wait to stop playing them. It's funny. I, I just never was huge into shooters um beyond maybe using bows in in rpgs and stuff i i just i am the kind of person who would much rather pick up a sword and fight hand to hand oh yeah like real man what's that what's the name of that ubisoft game that's like a fighting but it's like an arena game but you're like fighting with swords and things uh i can't remember what it's called at the moment but uh it, it had kind of a rocky launch but i always like the concept behind it and i hope they make a, a sequel so do I, as soon as I remember the name. Actually, I hope somebody other than Ubisoft makes it, because I've never been that big a fan of Ubisoft games. Oh, gasp. Of, I can just hear Mike. Well, there goes the Ubisoft. There goes the Ubisoft <laughs> sponsorships in this podcast. We had a sponsorship? I don't know. I guess as I get more set in my ways, like the two kind of games that I like are, are RPGs. Uh, I like simulations. I like tactics games. And I like uh, retro games. Yeah, uh, that's fair. I guess once upon a time, shooters were the kind of series, were the kind of genre where I would be like, I could be really like, I had full buy-in to the the, the set pieces and stuff, right? Like yeah. I totally got into it. But now I've seen that stuff so many times that it's just not that novel to me. 
and I've never been that good at the competitive side of shooters, and I never will be, and so I find them kind of tedious. Yeah, um, there's also a time when practically everything was shooters, like in the Xbox 360 era. If you, I was never huge into shooters, like I just said, but there were still ones I picked up once in a while because it's like, well, sure aren't there any RPGs going on right now, and uh, I hear this game is good, so I'll pick it up and play it, and I did. And also, the thing with a game like Destiny, I don't care how much damn loot you throw at me. Loot for the loot, sake of loot doesn't do anything for me. It's how you apply it tactically. And uh, Destiny 2 just isn't that deep. <laughs> no, there's loot and then there's garbage. Vendor trash. I mean, I mean, they have interesting rare loot with cool lore behind it that looks neat when you're using it and everything. Uh-huh. And has, you know, interesting kind of values to it but you're not building your character you're just getting a fancy gun yeah of course yeah and frankly i'm not the kind of person who likes to sit there and read lore as delivered by a weapon you know what i mean (laughs) weirdly enough i kind of liked borderlands 3 i have never played a borderlands game and i don't know if i intend to start well i find the humor off-putting but yeah and again shooter but there's a lot more uh character development that goes into it and mm-hmm. in terms of actually building your character up uh, and choosing what to unlock and everything. And there are so many crazy guns out there to get that it's kind of fun. And plus there's a girl that, you know, she's like Diva from Overwatch and that she has a mech that she can drive around. And I found that pretty fun. That, that would be kind of cool, honestly. Maybe I won't pick it up because I find the, the writing just too annoying. But I, I was tempted after I played a few hours of Borderlands 3. I was like, I don't know, maybe I'll pick it up. Yeah, you'll have to see. You'll have to see if you resist or if you uh, if you sink in for it. Okay. Well, I guess we'll find out when I return from the desert to changed person. A <laughs> changed person. You're going to come back and you're going to be like just totally with the land now. And we're all going to be like, you know, giving you articles that have been like banged out on wood instead of computers. All right. Acts of Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review. We really appreciate that. As always, subscribe to our newsletter. You can follow me at Twitter at the underscore Catbot, and I is at Nandi Oxford. And follow all of the U.S. Gamer social feeds at U.S. Gamer Net. Please come visit our website. It's a good website, and I enjoy being on it. But I'm going to be gone next week. Uh, somewhere in the desert, somewhere with all the dust. Uh, meanwhile, Nadia and Eric and Mike are all going to be at PAX West. You should go to their panels. You can find a scheduling for all of that over on the site. And also, uh, we are going to have an episode next week, and yes. it's going to be Nadia's panel for Final Fantasy yes. VII, uh, the exploration of Midgar. Uh, So we'll have the full recording of that. That will be next week's episode. And then I will be back the week after that uh, to relate all of my adventures. Yeah, like, well, I sat in the dust. And then I (laughs) sat in the dust some more. No, it's not like that. You know, you can bike around. It's kind of like Mad Max meets a rave or something. I don't know. That's uh, that's probably a good way of putting it. God, I haven't been to a rave since I was, like, 20. Apparently, people build these, like, pop-up bars and stuff. Like, you can literally just go from bar to bar just getting completely hammered out of your mind if you want it's all you may free as well if you're in the yeah yeah if you're in the desert you may as well like the stars will be nice you can have that at least it's all free though some people ask that you have a poem or, or you have to have a good conversation <laughs> with them which honestly i'd rather was... just pay the money go capitalism <laughs> there once was a man from nantucket there's my poem <laughs>
Give me my beer. All right, folks, I'll see you in a couple weeks. But until then, for Nadia and myself, thanks for listening. Happy adventuring. Thank you.